his answer was to basically beam this beam chi at me from about three feet away. And it was totally palpable and had clearly physical effects on my body, what he was doing to it. And my mind was blown. From that moment, I was on this path that I'm on. This also made me think that this art is a medical art as much as a martial art. And so then we come to the Neijing and it automatically starts to all relate. I get to start to read the Neijing and I'm like, oh, this is why it works so good. This is why Bagua and Xingyi and Tai Chi work so good as medicine, because they're based on this understanding from the Neijing of how you have to be to be in the world. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. In this episode with Ethan Mershey, we talk about all things martial arts and the classic texts of Chinese medicine. Ethan is the founder of the Montreal Gong Fu Research Center, Gong Fu, more commonly known as Kung Fu. He's a veteran practitioner of many Chinese martial arts, including Tai Chi, Xing Yi, and Bagua, and has practiced Chinese medicine for 20 years. His path into Gong Fu and Chinese medicine began as a teen when a rapid growth spurt gave way to lung complications. Where surgery saved his life but left him debilitated, ancient practices steered him onto a path of healing. Now Ethan is a student of classical Chinese language. We talk about his recent teachings of the Shang Han Lun, his research and ongoing passion for the Huangdi Neijing, and his captivation with the Yijing. And we explore how for the last five years he has expanded his vocabulary, use, and understanding of Chinese. This is a captivating episode for the Chinese medicine enthusiast who wants to bring the medicine inward for personal growth and healing. Please enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Ethan Murchie. Ethan, welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's good to have you. I thank Dan G. Reed, who was a guest on a previous episode, for introducing us. And I have to admit, other than the brief email thread we had back and forth, Dan didn't tell me much about you. So this is kind of a conversation where I'm not sure where it's going to go. Uh, the only thing that Dan told me is that you're currently working on some research with the White Pine Institute about breathwork and qigong in the Huangdi Neijing. So why don't we start from there? All right. Uh, exactly. So actually, Dan was got that a little bit mixed up. The uh, What's happening right now with the White Pine Institute is that we're running a class, or we, actually today was the last class of the cycle in which we were taking a group of people through a recital of the Shanghun Lun. Okay. And so this was uh, something different than we'd seen anyone anywhere, anywhere else. It really, there was no discussion about theory or how to apply it or anything like that. We were literally just reading out loud the Chinese and in a similar way to the way that you would learn it if you were in a school in China kind of thing. Mm. So that was what, what was happening at the White Pine Institute. Now, the, the, the Neijing and Qigong research that he was mentioning, that Dan mentioned, is being done with the Xinling Institute and uh, uh, Dr. Ed Neal. So that uh, is a whole 
yeah, that's a whole other thing. The, the, the White Pine Institute stuff is just one little course with this kind of weird idea of reciting the Shang Lin. The, the research with the Neijing is a much bigger thing. It's okay. Kind of, yeah. Well, let's talk about the Shang Lun recital that you just finished. Okay. What kind of audience participated in that and what's the benefit? Okay, so the way that came about really was the my friend Stefan Grace, who's uh, a Chinese medicine practitioner, his, when he was in school in Portland, he had a teacher there named uh, Dr. John Lee, who I've never met, but I guess a quite a you know a lot of people who have studied in Portland would remember him. And in his class of Shanghan Lin class, he made them do this recital, and Stefan was very impressed with it. He was impressed with the way in which uh, doing starting off with no Chinese and sort of reciting this uh, mumbo jumbo, unintelligible sort of gibberish, over the course of a year or two of sticking to it and reciting up twenty or thirty lines a day, spending not very much time, ten minutes or fifteen minutes a day reciting these lines, uh, sort of transformed his his uh, experience of using herbal medicine in the clinic, in the way that he started to he would just spontaneously discover that uh, the person he was looking at fit with line say 210 and this happened not because uh by by our normal route of kind of uh intellectually figuring it out it happened by this other route of this by rote repeating until the thing became part of his thought process so stefan was really impressed with that so he started he asked me if i wanted to try it out and i said sure so we started trying it out with with me and uh, some of our students and then um, Sabine Wilms had us come on to her little podcast. It's called, she calls it Tea Time Talks. Yeah. And discuss with some other things, really. She wanted us to discuss about our experience of practicing Qigong and, and Chinese martial arts along with reading the Neijing. And in the process of discussing that, the idea of this recital of the Shang Lun came out. And uh, so many people wrote to us and said, hey, we want to do that. How can we do that? that the, the people at the White Pine Institute said, oh, oh, we can, we'll facilitate that. If people want to do it, let's do it. And so they just said, they just set it up after that. It had, it was in completely unplanned, spontaneous arising because so many people expressed interest after just hearing the idea of it. Hmm. What is the White Pine Institute, Ethan? Pardon? What is the White Pine Institute? Uh, I'm maybe not the best person to answer that question, but for me, the White Pine Institute is uh, Sharon Weizenbaum's effort to create a community of people who are focused on, I think, uh, studying classical Chinese herbalism. Okay. That, that's my take on it. But I'm, I'm actually not heavily involved with them. I, it's just that they asked to facilitate this Shanghai Linry. And so you were on the Tea Time Talk with Sabina talking about the Neijing mm-hmm. and what it, and you mentioned to me in email that you have a passion in the Neijing. So what is your interest in the Neijing and the work that you do? Right. So I, I've, I've been in some way or another focused on the Neijing as the, this root or the source of all the Chinese medicine uh, since the beginning of my studies. And that became about in a specific way because I, I kind of came into Chinese medicine in a peculiar fashion maybe not peculiar is not the right word, but a, a non-typical fashion for North Americans. And that essentially, I 
I had like a classical, a classic, not a classical, a classic, a gong fu kind of story. You know, I I wanted to study uh, a martial art called Bagua Zhang. I went and found a teacher. I like sat out in front of his door and waited to be noticed. I passed all the through all the grueling tests and all that kind of stuff. And wound up with a master who I stayed with for 20 years, like lived at his house and all that kind of stuff. Wow. All the things that you associate with the, the a, a movie kind of uh, Kung Fu story. Uh, I can say that now looking back at it, I, it wasn't so obvious that it was so, so, so picture perfect at the time when I was living, it was <laughs> normal. But then when I look back, I'm like, wow, that's really what happened. And so I learned all my medicine by being in the clinic and by listening to my teacher, there was no classes, there was no classroom work, there was no sitting down and studying. There was just a, a nonstop barrage of sort of experiences. And he was adamant that it all went back to the Neijing and that we should study the Neijing as much as we can. So I set about doing that. Now he had, at the time, he advised us that the best Neijing we could get our hands on in English was the one that was uh, translated by Ilza Vith. Does that mean anything to you? Do you know what that it means? Does. Yep. So, yeah. So this is Ilza Vith is a, she was a sinologist and her Neijing translation is very academic. And I, I don't think she knew any medicine per se. So it's kind of weird because it doesn't, it doesn't really get into it too much. It's just this bare bones translation. But my teacher thought that was better than many of the other English translations in which he said, if you, if they gave you the idea that you understood it, it was wrong that you shouldn't read it and understand it. You should read it and be intrigued and uh, pushed like, like inspired to keep on thinking about it and paying attention to what happens in the clinic and trying to figure it out. But if you thought it just made sense right away, then that was not as good as having as being somewhat mystified. So starting from that point of view, I was mystified and began trying to figure it out, you know, I, and I went through many different, uh, I read all the, available versions in English and I, I live in Quebec so I can speak and read French. So I read the, the available translations in French as well, which is primarily Dr. Van Gee. And especially Dr. Van Gee's oral transmissions where he, he come and give lectures and when you can see lectures of his that have been recorded, it started to make a lot of sense in many ways. Uh, his actual translation, written translation of the Neijing never really made much sense despite my efforts to make it make so. Uh, but all this time I was convinced that uh, it was really was the, the foundation of everything that I was doing. Martial arts and medicine both was all there in the Neijing. And so then when I eventually took Dr. Neil's course, uh, which is a year and a half long online thing where he goes through his, his uh, a lot of translation of the Neijing and his interpretation of it, and the take home thing there was that, well, no, first off, he said, what he said made so much sense that it was uh, very, very happy making. I mean, I was, I was like, wow, okay. If the way he's describing the Neijing, and I think that, that uh, Dr. Neil is really doing the first really kind of comprehensive translation of the Neijing into English, directly into English by someone who's an accomplished medical practitioner. I may be wrong about that. Maybe there's some I'm missing somewhere or something, but in the past, it's always been Chinese people. So they're translating it into something that's not their mother tongue or it's gone, gone to French first and then to English or, you know, various things. But 
uh, Dr. Neal's just an American of our generation, essentially talking our kind of English and trying to say it the clearest way he can in our English. And I was like, wow, this is, he's, a, he's taken everything that I've already learned from my teacher and from my, in my, my main, my primary teacher, my master and all the other teachers that I've had in, in, in uh, China and the States and making it all fit together. So it stopped being like uh, kind of different pieces of information and became one thing that made sense uh, or showed potential of making sense. You know, I could, I wouldn't say I figured it all out yet, but it was very, very, very cool to, to see how a more comprehensive translation of the book made it so much more comprehensible and logical. Maybe you can answer this with so many classic Chinese medical texts and so many variations on translations of them. If these scholars are translating the original text, as they are in most cases, how widely can those translations really differ when it comes to English? Uh, well, this is this is the crux of the matter, right? It, it seems like they can wider, they can they can vary very widely according to so many factors involved with the the translators' experiences, life experiences, focus, interest, capacity, ability to translate. All these things uh, make a big difference. So and you've read. Go ahead. You've read every, as far as you know, every English version of the Neijing, and in doing that, mm-hmm. do they all seem like different books to you? No, actually, they not. I wouldn't say that. They, they. There's a, a central thing which it's always going around, uh, but it's it's largely it's just not very clear what the details. That's what it comes down to. The details are very not clear. Are those details nuances in the translations, or are they added commentary? I think. Uh, well, again, you you kind of can't separate those two things. The, because the nature of the classical Chinese is such that to render it into English requires you to, to commentate, basically. Uh, and this is kind of like the trippy part about the classical Chinese, if, once you get into it, is that it requires you to uh, look at terms and, and kind of work with them in the context of their sentence without assigning like one of the possible meanings to it. Like there's a number of sort of network meanings and you, you have to kind of maintain all those, that network of meaning, which to do in English means you have to kind of commentate. There's no simple way to do it in English. And I guess in simplified form, it's kind of like the translation of acupuncture point names, because there are often many different associations that could be made about an acupuncture point name. And really, uh, an adept practitioner has to hold all of those in mind because it's it's not necessarily just one of those translations that's accurate. It's a combination of all of them. Right, which is then informed by your ability to do that synthesis and your personal experiences than how, how you use the point in the end or how the point works for you. Right. Yeah, yeah this is the right in the nitty-gritty of the whole uh, sort of complication of these, these kind of transmissions. And so, so this was it. That's exactly the, the big take home thing that I ended up getting from Dr. Neil's course was he said, as long as you're listening to translations, it's like you're standing out in front of the movie theater, listening to people who come out, tell you about the movie inside rather than going in and seeing it yourself. And so that's when I was like, I need to, to see the movie myself kind of thing. So then I 
arranged to learn Chinese and, and start to be able to read it myself, which I'm about four, four or five years into that project now. So I'm just now in the past uh, eight months, I'd say getting into actually comfortably reading the Neijing and, and kind of beginning to create my own uh, understanding of it or my own view of it kind of. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah, that's, I, I feel the same. It was a realization just recently that I'm like, oh, I'm actually doing it now. <laughs> five years later i'm like oh, i finally got here it's, it's kind of cool yeah oh that's similar to what dan said when i interviewed him he just he wanted to read these texts in their original language and whether there were translations or not he wanted to do it himself so that it was his understanding this is it and and it really came about because uh because what dr neil was saying and and once really all the Nijings that i've been reading in english all the translating is saying things that relate so much back to my experience that I, I kind of took it as is one of the pivotal ways in which I understand the world. And so then to be able to get back to the original one and find out that it's actually more sort of comprehensive and logical when you can take, when I can apply, apply my experience to the text. Uh, it's quite, it's, it's, it's very interesting for sure. So Ethan, what is it about the Neijing that has you so captivated with all of the books, the Shang'an Loon that you've obviously spent time in, but all of the various classics, why the Neijing? Uh, well, so I have to say that I, I don't have a really broad range of classical scholarship behind me, you know, uh, but what it is, is that I, like I said at the beginning, I, I was sort of raised from the age of about 18 in a full-time environment of Chinese martial arts and medicine. And so I, by in a sort of osmosis, I absorbed this sort of worldview of how things work. And then I discovered, find that in the Neijing, it explains that worldview much better than anyone, any of my teachers were ever able to explain it. Because either they were uh, Americans that had been taught by Chinese people, and there's always a, a language barrier, but that, or Chinese people who didn't speak English, and I didn't speak Chinese, so there's a language barrier. But the the part that was an experience, a lived experience, was I lived it. So I, I, I very much felt and still feel like I, it's part, the way I see the world is from this, these experiences of living through uh, the training of Kung Fu and Chinese medicine. But now all that is informed by an understanding of the Neijing. Like if they developed those practices, they developed this medicine by studying the Neijing. So of course it says it much more comprehensively and beautifully than anyone else says it for it, you know? Uh, and what I find is that it explains everything. That's what's so cool about it. it and not in a, the, this is, you asked earlier, like about the other the English translations, they have a tendency to, for my taste, sound kind of mystical and magical. Whereas when I read the text itself, it sounds very much uh, scientific and logical. Now it's a different kind of science than we're used to thinking about today, but it's incredibly just matter of fact, and based on observation, empirical science, and therefore, again, explains what I feel, what I, what I, my experience of being alive is explained by the Neijing. It then takes, you know, it, it, the, we have the Suwen and the Ling Shu, and the big, it, it's kind of mixed together, really. But the big thing is the Suwen explains everything, and then the Ling Shu says, "Here's how you apply it in an acupuncture clinic." But the explaining everything part is really comprehensive, and it says to understand how to treat people, you have to understand how the world works, and here's how it works. And I, find, I think that if it can be said in, um, 
if it can be said in the right kind of language in English, you know, if we can use the right words and, and make a translation that's aimed at this kind of transmission, we can really make that point obvious to everyone that it's not mysterious or magical really any more than actually all life is mysterious and magical when you get right down to it. But actually it's a, a method of natural science, which allows you to understand what's what, what it feels like to be alive, like what the experience of being alive is. And is that something you're hoping to do through this translation well, or are you translating for yourself? Well, you know, it's, uh, at this point I'm more translating for myself. Cause as I said, I, it's only in the last eight months that I hit this, got over this hurdle where I'm like, ah, I'm, I'm able to actually do this thing now. So I wouldn't, I'm more in, right now interested very much in engaging with the text on a daily basis as a kind of practice and also engaging with other people who are also doing that kind of practice and seeing where that goes, as opposed to saying like, I'm going to make a translation, you know, that's not really the, the point that I'm interested in. Right. So as I mentioned in the very beginning, you're working on some research. I had the wrong institute, but you're doing research in the number of mentions of breathwork and Qigong in the Neijing. Right. Why is that? Um, so there's kind of two parts to it. Uh, and the, the first part, and it kind of goes back to your previous question about translating what my goal is with translating whatnot. And so that's a, what I've actually been doing for the past year, very substantially with with very concretely with this kind of work is I've been running retreats where we go out and we do Xing Yichuan, which is a kind of a Chinese martial art, which can just say similar to Tai Chi. Everyone knows what Tai Chi Chuan is. Xing Yichuan is, you know, similar. Uh, and it's amounts to moving meditation. So we, the retreats have been 10 days long, but we spend 10 days doing this moving meditation and, and doing, uh, classes about the way that the the Neijing explains why this kind of moving meditation is doing what we think it's doing to us. So this is taking applying the Neijing, applying translations of the Neijing to an understanding of a practice that otherwise would be uh, again experientially very obviously good for you when you do it, but mysterious as to why is it good for you. So that's what I've actually been doing. That's like, rather than make, making a translation that's like a, a academic translation or something that's written down in a book that we publish or something, I have been translating and applying it directly to real life today, but it's been through this medium of doing these retreats. And that's kind of like what we were talking about with Sabine on her podcast about uh, our, the work, you know, the, the, this idea of combining Qigong and, and Neijing science. Who partakes in these retreats? Uh, so far, it's all people who are already training Xing Yichuan with us. So I'm a member of a group. It's called the North American Tongshu Dao Association, which was founded by my teacher, whose name is Vince Black. And so it's a, a, a sort of an association of schools all around North America that train Xing Yi and Bagua and Tai Chi. So it's members of that group, which are have been doing it. It's starting with the first one. It, I, it was very experimental. The very first one, I was like, we're going to find out what happens. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't even know if we're going to be able to do this. Like, it was kind of loosely based on a Buddhist meditation retreat. Uh, but there you sit down for 10 days. So it's relatively easy. You know, it's not that it's easy, but it's relatively easy compared to this uh, moving through your forms for 10 days. 
So I didn't even know what was going to happen. So I just had people closer, students who I could trust. I could be like, okay, you're a guinea pig. And, and we, you know, we'll all accept the consequences if it goes awry. Hmm. So that's who's been doing it so far. As we develop it, you know, I hope that we can open it up to more people. But. Can you explain a bit what Xing Chuan is and how it differs from Tai Chi Chuan? Sure. The, the, the thing to, to realize is that everyone kind of has an idea of, of Tai Chi Chuan and how it's these soft and flowing, slow, soft flowing movements and very much relatable to Qigong practices. So Xing Yi Chuan has the same principles driving all the movements, the same thinking behind it. However, it's much more focused on a, a direct expression of a self-defense nature. So it looks, you can tell right away that they're doing some kind of martial art when you look at it. Uh, however, behind that, these principles are the same as the Xing Yi Chuan, or excuse me, as the Tai Chi Chuan. Then the Xingyi is interesting because its main focus is on a, the, a, a practice of the wuxing, which we always are saying the five elements. This gets us into a different topic because I feel like if I say just say wuxing, I'm not sure how many people listening would understand right away what I'm talking about. If I say the five elements, I think everyone right away knows what I'm talking about. But I'm really against saying five elements anymore because uh, of the translation stuff. And then find out that the term wuxing, which we translate as five elements, doesn't mean anything like five, like the elements doesn't come into it. This is, so then I, I get into in the zone where I'm, I'm at fairly often now where all of, like for example, my translators that I've worked with for years in, in dealing with Chinese people, if I say we can't say elements anymore, five elements, it's just horrible. They're like, yeah, yeah, but that's just the way it is. It does, you know, we're all used to saying that now. So we're just gonna keep saying it. And I, I can't really accept it. I'm like, no, it has to be changed because there is no element in in the term wuxing. So, how do you translate wuxing? Uh, there's a variety. Of what we said earlier, the, the this networked set of meanings is is has to be dealt with. But in a, if we say the five phases or the five movements, this is all fine. Anything of that nature. Those are all phases, movements. Those those can relate to the the meaning of the the Chinese word xing. Whereas elements just isn't there at all. Uh, and a cool thing in terms of our, our practice that we're doing with this uh, Xing Yi Chuan is the, the very first meaning of Xing and Wu Xing is to march in progression the way soldiers do. And so when we, we're doing these practice of, of Xing Yi Chuan, that's what we do essentially. We, it's, a, it's a movement, there's five movements that relate to the five phases. Each one has a physical form, which relates it to the organ, the channel and organ system, as you would expect. And, and by practicing it, you just move forward very kind of a very stylized way of walking. And when we're doing it all together in a group, we're moving forward as if in the same way as soldiers move forward in formation, which is actually the original meaning of the term Xing. So that kind of stuff would really fits together so nicely. This is where you start to get your mind kind of blown that it can fit together so nicely. Mm. So that's it. The, the, the special thing about the Xing Yi Chuan compared to Tai Chi Chuan is this root practice, which is the five movements, which obviously relate to your five uh, organ systems of the Zong organs very clearly and directly. Um, then it has other things that we have 12 animal movements, which are more about fighting and combat of and stuff. 
I think it relates back to the Neijing because when you get into the Neijing and the nitty gritties, then you find that things that are grouped in fives are at that Zong organ or a very core level of organization. And things that are grouped in sixes or twelves are like the channel system, more at the exterior related to moving with the outer world. And in the in the Xingyi Tuan system, we have the five basic movements that relate to your Zong organs, and then 12 movements that relate to how to defend yourself against people trying to kick and punch you. So you see that they're using the same thought pattern, you know, they're using the same kind of schematic to devise their Xingyi system. And from that, we know that they were very much involved with the Neijing and the way the Neijing is thinking. So we know that their whole thinking about how they devised the Xingyi Chen system was based in study of the Neijing. None of us know this yet because no one's actually been able to study the Neijing that closely before. So this is where it leads us to the research with the Qigong and the, the breathing and patterns and whatnot and the Neijing. I forget what you said exactly that Dan had repeated to you. But oh, he just told me you were doing research on the mentions of breathwork and Qigong and the Neijing. Oh, breathwork and Qigong. So what we did then is, uh, we, so we knew that there was this connection between the Xingyi trend and the Neijing. And we saw, we again, you asked earlier, like how does someone's, how different are the different translations? And so for myself and Stefan, who I'm working with, we, we read the Neijing as practitioners, in my case, like 30 years of practicing Qigong and, and uh, internal Gong Fu kind of things. And what pops out to me are things that relate to my practice. Those are the first level without even understanding, even, you know, two years ago when I couldn't really understand a whole page properly, the, when it said something that seemed to have the direct relation to the, the practices that I have, it would sort of pop out. And I noticed right away, like compared with uh, Dr. Neil, who does not have a, a that kind of physical cultivation practice, the same things didn't pop out to him or the meaning to him would be somewhat different according to his experience than mine. So we wanted to find out more about what it would said, what it said directly to our kind of experiences. And so we took, Following Dr. Neil's lead, we, we very much took his model and got his advice on how to set it up. And what we did is we took a, a number of terms. There's about 15 or 20 terms that are in the Neijing that would seem to relate to Qigong practices. So the first most obvious one is Dao Yin. Dao Yin is the, like an old term for what we would today call Qigong. And so we searched using a, the computers we have now, we just can take our uh, document and we can search Dalian in, in the Suen and see how many times does it pop up. And same, it pops up maybe three times. It's very not talked about a lot. And then we say, so what does it say about it? And then we looked at that. And so another one that came from that right away is uh, moving Qi, Xing Qi. So then we search Xing Qi and see how many times does Xing Qi pop up? And we make a list of all those. And then we start going through and saying, okay. And then, so then there's different things like inhale and exhale, who is she, uh, hard and soft, uh, rising and falling. These are all different terms that we, we search for. And then we go back and some of them, there's many references. Some of them, there's not very many. Uh, and we look at the ones, we look at them all and say, is this something that could relate to, uh, the practice of Qigong? And then some of them, it obviously doesn't relate at all. Uh, and so we just sort of put those aside and then now we're getting down to a shorter list of things that are definitely in some way could relate to Qigong. And now we're starting a phase of going back and sort of translating those passages more carefully and 
trying to find out if indeed we think it has some relation or not. And so this idea of uh, going through that process is what Dr. Neil calls textual archaeology. And it's this thing of taking the Neijing, which if we had to take it 100 years ago and just take uh, an old school wood woodblock type of printed uh, copy of the Neijing and, and read through the whole thing and search for this kind of correlated information, we would have, like not very many people could do it, you know? You have to be a really kind of special scholar to be able to do that kind of work. And so I didn't get done that much. And so I find, I think even in within Chinese culture, the the way in which the Neijing, the information in the Neijing filtered out was different than the way it's going to filter out now. So this using the, the computers and this ability to correlate all the information is what Dr. Neil calls the textual archaeology. And so we're trying to apply that method to find out what uh, what we can find out about the chicken, what it does, what it can say about our practices, our experiences. And what are you finding out? Oh, uh, the issue there is that we're still in this in the in the middle of doing it. So I don't have any real um, well articulated conclusions yet. Um, okay. Where I'm going to though is is certainly. Uh, that's where we're headed towards. We're headed towards being able to having a presentation about our findings for the Xinling Institute, and then also to uh, probably write some articles and stuff and say, here's what we found, you know, and, and be able to, it's going to take me time to put it all together. However, uh, the kind of thing, one of the first things that we found, this is not so much dug up with our archaeology because it's so obvious when you start. But one of the first things you find about the Neijing and what it says about Qigong is that in uh, chapter 11, I believe, of the Suwen, it talks about the different kinds of treatments that come from different areas. So it says like in the north, it's cold and the people drink a lot of horses, milk and this and that. And so they and so as a result, uh, moxa is used in the north and the moxa comes from the north. Moxa bushing comes from the north. In the east, they eat a lot of fish and it's really salty and this has a bad effect on their blood and stuff. And so as a result, the bleeding therapies come from the east. And they go around and they say we're all these things uh, in the south is and in the west. And then in, in the center, they say in the center, everything is really rich and fertile and there's tons of everything. People don't have to struggle very much or work really hard to make a living. And they have all the different kinds of foods that they could want to eat. And so that sounds like us. That's us, basically, right? The, the, the independent of whether we live more in the north or the south or the east or the west, our technology has produced a situation in which we don't have to work very hard. And I mean, it's not to say that we don't work hard, but we're not uh, manual laborers pulling our own plow in the fields, that kind of work. And, and we can access whatever kind of food we want, really. And so the problems that arise in that environment are best treated with massage and qigong. This is specifically what it says. So that was like, oh, interesting. So this is very interesting. And and again, I find this very often. If in my clinic, I would think 80% of the people that come to me, if they if they would have a, a proper qigong practice, and I mean by that, like we're talking a, something an hour a day of spending time doing the right kinds of movements, they wouldn't need to come to me. You know, their problems would be solved. They wouldn't need treatment at all. Uh, so there you go. Exactly what the Neijing is saying. The, the, the people I see, they most need massage and qigong more than 
more than other things. Not to say they don't need other things too, you know, there's all different kinds of situations, but as a generalization. Right. Let's go back to the Xingyi Chuan retreats mm-hmm. that you're doing. What have you found is the outcome or the benefits in those retreats for the participants? Well, it's been quite uh, gratifying, really. The Almost everyone reports a lot of positive feedback. Uh, some of the very easily quantifiable things are a number, I'd say three or four different people very clearly had their allergies disappear. Various different kinds of allergies to cats and dogs and different foods, uh, things that cause a lot of sniffling and, and throat stuff were just gone. What do you attribute that to? Uh, some kind of an optimization of their metabolism is what I think it is. I think it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's, this is what I believe. Yeah. And did you not say that the people who partake in these retreats are practitioners of Xing Yi Chuan? Yes. Exactly. So what is it about the retreats that gives them such a greater benefit than what they are getting from their daily practice? It's the, it's the dosage, you know, it's the same thing as with, when we look at, uh, like I said, we kind of copied it, the idea off of uh, Vipassana Buddhist meditation retreats. So in that situation, the idea is you have a daily practice where you meditate for any amount of time, you know, from five minutes to an hour or two every day. And then you come to your retreat and you do 10 days straight in the case of the meditation, I think like 14 hours a day. And that intensive 10 days puts a momentum and a spin onto the rest of your your practice, which can't be duplicated in any other way. And so the same thing in this case, the, we, we, we can't do 14 hours a day, uh, so far anyway, it works out to nine hours a day of doing these exercises, which, so, you know, can, can imagine that means that if someone it, with a, who has a busy life and, uh, everything and normally gets in an hour of practice a day, we're doing, uh, more than a week's worth of practice in one day. And then we do 10 days of that. So they get in, you know, it's just much more intensive. And how did those numbers come about nine hours a day for 10 straight days? Well, largely uh, actually due to the movement of the planet. Just like the sun comes up and the sun goes down and uh, we haven't really seen a good way to do it in the dark particularly yet. Some people have kind of really been like, we should keep going in the dark and everything. But, you know, like the one we do it here in Quebec, after it gets dark, sometimes it's raining too. So it's dark and rainy and you're in the woods. It's like really dark, you know? So uh, it just didn't work, didn't make sense. And the, the best ones we've had, actually, we like start right as the sun's coming up and we finish right as it's going down every day. And between uh, having the sessions where we're actually working, walking, and a, a breaks to rest and to eat, uh, it ends up being nine hours. And actually what we do is that's, uh, three out, three sessions, three three-hour sessions of of moving through the wuxing, and then there's actually on top of that an hour of discussing the the theory, or in this case the neijing, and two hours of seated meditation to sort of fill it out. So it ends wow. up being twelve hours of of work a day, but only nine hours of the actual wuxing. Yeah. Wow, that's that's intense. It's intense. That's the idea. But if you've ever been to a Vipassana meditation retreat, that's also intense. And so that was kind of the, the goal that I was going for. When I this the, the way, way back, the roots of this were because the first time I went to a Vipassana retreat, uh, 
and they have a schedule, you know, the Vipassana, I've only been to Guenca's Vipassana and they have a, a very um, organized thing. You know, they give you a practice for the first day and a different one for the second day and a different one for the third day and so on. And they kind of teach you how to do the technique. And I was like, wow, this is exactly the same as doing Shingi. Like here we get to sit down. So it's actually really easy. And that's what they said. Like, they're like, if you get really pleasurable sensations, you should, you know, ignore them. And if you get really unpleasant sensations, you should ignore them. And my problem was that it was so pleasurable. It was really hard to ignore the pleasurable parts. And the pleasurable parts were because I was like, compared to standing all day, this is so much easier. It's so much easier to do this sitting down than standing up. But what they're telling me to do is exactly the same. So I was like, wow, what's up with that? And that was a long time ago. That was 15 years ago. But that sort of planted the seed of what we're, we're doing now. I feel that it's got to be, if you think about it logically, it's got to be that uh, a practice, which is essentially a, a, a kind of moving meditation, which is then applied to martial arts or applied to pugilism that came out of China sometime in the last 200 years, had to be influenced by Buddhist meditation and Taoist meditation. Like it, and we're always kind of focus on the Taoist part. Uh, people like that for some reason, but the Buddhist part had to be just as much present. I mean, then we can get into a whole different discussion about how the Taoism and the Buddhism all blended together and whatnot. But uh, I, I, I'm just, I'm sure that, that our ancestors in the martial arts world were hanging out with accomplished Buddhist practitioners and combining their seated meditation with moving meditation. I, it's got to be that that's the way it was. And you mentioned an interest in Bagua, which basically led you down this path. Can you tell me a bit about that and what inspired you to go seek out a teacher and work with that individual for 20 straight years? Uh, it was because when I was 13 years old, I suffered a series of uh, events called the, the traumas called spontaneous pneumothorax, which means that my, it means actually that I grew about a foot in a year. And I was like a super tall, skinny kid and my lung just popped on its own it actually the first two times it didn't pop on its own i, I got the wind knocked out of me and it tore my lung wow and then after those first two times it i guess the where it tore it was now all weakened so then it just started happening on its own with no, no impact and so that was my left lung and it was gonna kill me eventually so the doctors did a big operation on me which in retrospect was fairly a butchering you know the the if you meet people who've had this operation today, they get two little one centimeter holes to where they go in orthoscopically and they do the whole thing. Whereas I have like a six inch giant scar where they like peeled me open like I was doing open heart surgery or something. And after that, I was quite messed up. Uh, there was no physiotherapy or rehabilitation or anything like that. They just were like, see ya. So I was trying to figure out how to get my health back basically. And I tried everything I could really think of every, you know, I, I just tried lots of different stuff. And eventually that led me to, to Tai Chi. And I was like, this is the bomb. I love it. I'm totally want to do this. And Ethan, how did it lead you to Tai Chi? Cause that's just not a normal direction for a teenager to go and the Western culture anyway. Right. Right. I, I don't really know. I mean, it, it just was, it, it did literally just lead me there, but I was living at the time in uh, Vancouver and and or on Vancouver Island, on one of the Gulf Islands. 
and you know there's a lot of asian culture and stuff like that and so like i said i really was trying everything like i consciously was trying everything to find something that would help me get my body back because the what was wrong with my after the surgery was wrong was very obvious like even to me as a as a 16 or 17 year old it was obvious what i needed to do you know i was all kind of all stuck together and i couldn't i actually now that you asked me that question i can tell you one thing was some guy i met uh randomly like probably at a party or something like that uh demonstrated to me that i couldn't stand against a door frame and put my head and my tailbone against the door frame at the same time because my chest was so stiff and 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 uh kyphotic like so stiff and rolled forward yeah that i could either kind of like lean back and put my head there or lean forward and put my ass there but i couldn't straighten my back hmm. and i was like this is like this is like so wrong you know but and that guy was some kind of a martial arts person. And so from that, I probably said, okay, now I got to look at these martial arts things. And it wasn't just Tai Chi at the beginning. I tried all different kinds of martial, everything, you know, karate and Taekwondo. And uh, there wasn't really that much jujitsu back then. So I didn't do that. Uh, but I did uh, some capoeira, you know, I, I tried all different stuff and including the, the, uh, the Tai Chi. And then I, I actually met a guy named Henry Wong in the Comox Valley. And I think, I'm not sure if he still comes back to the Comox Valley or not. I know he's living in Taiwan most of the time, but he's a Tai Chi guy. And he did a thing where he, his people, they, he called it search center instead of push hands. And they didn't even touch each other, which was quite trippy, you know? But, uh, so I was playing, they were all very happy to have me there. Cause I was like 17 years old and they're like, oh, he's so flexible and like wiggly. And then I, something I didn't understand. So I asked Henry about it and his answer was to basically beam this beam chi at me from about three feet away. And it was totally palpable and had clearly physical effects on my body, what he was doing to it with this beam of chi. And my mind was blown. I was like, this is not supposed to exist. He's like using the force like Luke Skywalker or something. And, and my mind was blown. And so then from that, that was, from that moment, I was on this path that I'm on. That's understandable, I guess, from that experience. Yeah. And, but I, being a fairly sort of academically minded person, I did all the reading I could. And I found that the Tai Chi classics are quite clear. You should have the martial and the civil, by which they mean the health building parts and uh, ability to defend yourself. And I was totally blown away by this energy stuff that they were doing and by other, by the whole experience of doing Tai Chi, but no one could uh, in any way show me how it would save me in a fight. And I was, I grew up in Halifax, Nova Scotia in the eighties, 1980s. So I was fairly aware of what real fights were going to be like, you know? Uh, and I was like, this Tai Chi is not going to help me at all. So what, <laughs> what the classics say, it should be, it should be able to. So I want, I was like, what's up with that? I was trying to figure it out. And at that time they had a, there was no internet yet but they had the Bagua journal. I don't know if you know what that is. It was a book put out by, or a, 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 a journal put out for about three years about Bagua specifically. Some about, about uh, Xing Yichuan, but mostly about Bagua. And so I, I one of the, the Tai Chi centers where I like to hang out, they had all these issues of the Bagua journal and I read them all. And from that, I found out about Bagua. And it also happened that, uh, another weird part of my life is that when I was from about the age of 12 till 18, I became totally addicted to using the I Ching. 
and I did it every day. It became addicted. <laughs> well, yeah. What else do you call it if you feel like you need to consult the Ching every day? You know, it's some kind of addiction. So, what did this uh, look like? Well, I just I I carried the the Ching around with me everywhere and consulted it publicly <laughs> and forced it on all my friends and everything did you, too. Did you say starting when you were twelve? Yeah, I was about twelve when it started. It was because so it was it was in my father's library, and uh, I was just reading around in books. I I was. Yeah, I was reading around books in his library and I found it and it, I saw that it had, it was a Richard Willem edition and, you know, it explained how you throw the coins and everything. And so that's kind of like a cool, like it's interactive, you know? So I tried it out and I was like, well, that, I don't even remember what I thought when I first tried it, but it was fun enough that I kept doing it. And then I got my friends to do it. And then people always have, you know, the each thing, if as soon as you do that, then it seems to say something that relates exactly to what you're thinking today. So then you're, <laughs> so then you want to do more of it and then you just keep on doing it over and over again. Yeah. So that was a major sort of influence when I was a teenager. And so then I discovered that there was this other martial art that was related to Tai Chi, but was based all on the I Ching. I was like, Oh, well, that's the one I got to learn, you know? And also in the Bagua journals, there was a interview with my teacher, Vince, uh, in which he kind of laid out his his take on how to how to uh, train this stuff, and it was obviously uh, he he was a very real martial artist, you know. He and he talks about in this interview some of his his different experiences of uh, being a bouncer in a biker bar in Arizona in 1965 and stuff like this. And I was like, well, that's some real martial arts. Like that guy could really defend himself. So that's different to what I'm getting here. But that's kind of what I want to know about. And the guys up in British Columbia, where I was hanging out at the time at this Tai Chi center, they said, oh yeah, we know about those, those guys in the Tong Shadao. They get together and they, they do full contact fist fighting. And then they, afterwards they treat each other and drink beer together. And I was like, okay, <laughs> sounds good to me. I'll try it. And then- uh, Sounds like the Halifax. Final, well, kind of, except we didn't do any of the, we weren't so friendly afterwards necessarily. <laughs> But then the final icing on the cake was that uh, Vince's Vince at the time lived in in Tucson, Arizona, which is where my family's from. Even though I grew up in Nova Scotia and Canada and everything, so I'd already been there, you know, most of the years of my life to visit my grandparents and stuff. So I was like, oh, the kung fu master that I want to see is this lives down the road from Grandma's house. So it was a no-brainer. I just went down there and signed up, and then I never left. That was that's how that happened. Incredible. As I said at the beginning, I, looking back, I realized that I lived a very classic kind of Kung Fu like story. My, my old yeah. way it happened was very much like you couldn't have written a, a fiction book and made it more interesting or incredible. So what was the early impact of that Bagua practice on you? Did it deliver what you were hoping? Oh yeah, it fixed me. This is it. So, and this again informs my, every, my, my way of thinking and practicing now, uh, I, it did about 90% of what needed to be done to fix my body. The other 10% was things that I needed a little boost sometimes to a little, a little help once in a while, but 90% of it, I did just by practicing. And so again, that's why I said earlier, you know, most people I see, I think ah, if you would practice, not even like as much as I did when I was 20, but if you would practice, then, then your, your problems would go away. You wouldn't need any help anymore. Right. So this also made me think that this art is a medical art as much as a martial art. And so then we come to the Neijing and, you know, it automatically starts to all relate, you know, that I re I get to start to read the Neijing and I'm like, Oh, this is why it works so good. This is why Bagua and Xingyi and Tai Chi work so good as medicine because they're based on 
this understanding from the Neijing of how you have to be to be in the world. Right. Can you give us an insider's perspective, your inside perspective anyway, on what a Bagua practice looks like? Again, let's use Tai Chi Chuan as a kind of a baseline. How is it similar or different to Tai Chi Chuan? Fundamentally, again, the, the reason the principles are so, the reason they're grouped together is because there's not that big a difference. Uh, there's some rules that we follow, and I don't know how universal they are amongst uh, different kinds of schools, different families of internal martial arts people, but the rules we follow are pretty straightforward. The one of them is that you spend, you, sh- you should spend 80% of your time on your own training and 20% of the time with your friends training. This is the way it's said. And what it means, what they mean is 80% of the practice should be stuff that you do on your own, uh, forms, drills, exercises, and 20% should be where you actually uh, do two-person drills where people try to punch or kick you or in some form you interact with the other people directly. So the skill you're looking for is building up mostly by your own self work, not by learning how to better react to attacks and that kind of stuff. That's one, one role that's quite clear. Another one that informs our stuff that's pretty out of sync with the modern world is that, uh, Vince's teacher was a, a Taiwanese man named Shu Hong Shi. He said that fighting is easy. Anyone can learn to do it in three months. Therefore, what we're studying here is not about fighting. And so again, that informs your whole, you, you're, you're, if your art doesn't work as a self-defense method, it's, it's not re- like it doesn't work. It has to work as a self-defense method, but uh, the part where you just learn to fight is, is very, very short. So therefore, what do you do for 20 years if you're not learning to fight, right? Uh, more sort of specifically, it means we do a, a lot of, uh, there's sets of um, exercises, which are more or less rigorous. They could be, in our case, involve a lot of push-ups and sit-ups for young beginners over towards all the way to the more typical thing that people think of when they think of Qigong, so soft movements for older people. These different exercise sets are quite uh, heavily designed so that people put a lot of thought into which ones you should do first and which one's second and the order of exercises and things like that. And then there's always a form of moving meditation. Uh, the Bagua has the classic circle walking postures. The Xingyi has the Wuxing, the Tai Chi has the Tai Chi form. And then you get into doing uh, different kinds of drills to develop self-defense skills. And finally, you have a really small amount of time spent actually engaging in uh, something close to real fighting, in which in our, in our cases means we do something fairly MMA-ish in terms of you get a mouthpiece and a cup and some little gloves. And there's other than you're not allowed to mutilate your partner, there's not really any other rules there's no ground <laughs> we don't do any groundwork really uh right. if you get thrown then the, the the ref separates people okay but but there's not much else in terms of rules i mean the real rule is you can allow to mutilate your partner so yeah so there's kicking there's punching there's movements how does it compare with karate then well i'm again i'm not sure exactly like 
like karate, the, 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 the whole method, the forms and everything are, are different, right? And they have a different uh, kind of idea behind it. Uh, again, I'm not much of an expert on karate. I, I've done a fair amount, but you know, I'm not an expert in any way. But in terms of the fighting part, if that's what you're asking about, uh, it's, it's just if you see, if you see our, one of our sparring matches, uh, people just look like they're fighting. Like there's no, you don't see much great like if you're an expert if you're if you're a fisciendo and you can see like oh the guy just did a beautiful swan chen you can see it but if you didn't know what he was doing if you didn't know what a swan chen was you wouldn't know you wouldn't look like he did some kind of martial arts it just looks like a fight which is the point all the martial arts is for training the real fights just look like fights but the thing again it's important to say to, to stress that in our method that's a very small very very small part of what people need to do Vince would say two things. One is that he would compare it to an herbal formula and he'd say the, the actual fighting part or the actual combative part, sparring, because again, sparring is still not fighting, right? You're still not allowed to really hurt the person the way you would if you were scared for your life. The, the sparring part is like futsa in a formula. So you have to have it and you have to be willing to use it, but you can also really poison people with it and actually even kill them with it. So you have to be very careful how you right. use it. And the other thing you would say is that if you wanted to really develop the art, the, the self-defense aspect of the art, this proper posology, the proper dosage would be, you have to train every day, at least three hours a day. And if you're doing that, then every three months, you could do a day of sparring. Wow. But if you're not training that much in between times, then the sparring is just sparring. It's not actually adding up to the, the, the real skill that you're looking for. It's just kind of fun and games because you like being violent with each other. And is that comparable to the level of dedication that you had for 20 years? Mm, I, no, not, not uh, three hours a day, every day without pause in any fashion. Uh, I did do that for about uh, something around six years. I was actually that into it. Um, then, you know, life is life. You, you're busy, you're older, you don't have as much energy, you have families, all those different kind of things. But I, I'm, again, I would use the word addicted. I'm quite addicted. So I'd still practice quite a lot regularly, you know, every day I practice. But that kind of uh, intensive training, like where it's like you're, you, you, you're like, I have almost like a professional level of engagement with trying to be good at, at martial arts. No, that doesn't, I didn't go on for me for longer than the first uh, five or six years. Right. And is, are these practices that we're speaking of Bagua and Xing Yichuan, are these under the umbrella of Gong Fu? Oh yeah, definitely. Gong Fu to me means is a, you know, the, the popularized pronunciation is Kung Fu and Kung Fu is, means to me all Chinese martial arts basically. Okay. And is Qigong considered one of those martial arts? Uh, no, cause Qigong isn't necessarily a martial art that, however, what we're, what our method of, of doing martial arts or what we would call internal martial arts means is that in some form, all the martial arts practices are Qigong. However, you know, Qigong that has no martial intention at all is not necessarily a martial art at all. Um, so that, that's that. I, it should be said too, and since we're discussing Qigong directly, uh, I'd like to point out that the, the term Qigong itself is a modern thing, you know, came from uh, the communists coined it basically 
And so before 1953 or something like that, there wasn't really much talk of Qigong. And I'm not totally sure of the dates and stuff, but I guess you can find references to Qigong in earlier texts, but very rare. And so the, the things, the kind of practices that we're doing in our Gong Fu, in our martial arts stuff, would typically be called something along the lines of Nego, inner inner skills or inner work. Uh, again, though, I, that's my understanding. I, I haven't done a lot of research to know specifically like more about it in the in Chinese, but that's my understanding of, of those things. So I'm, I'm a little bit like the work we're doing with the Neijing and the fact that the, what we would today call Qigong, the Neijing is calling Daoyin. And similarly to the, the issue I have with Wuxing and calling it five elements, I'm, I'm leaning more and more towards um, wanting to call everything Daoyin instead of Qigong and, and just uh, do away with the whole communist influence altogether. <laughs> Fair enough. So Ethan, how has all of this informed your life outside of your Gong Fu practices outside of the Neijing. What have you done for a career during this time? Has it been related? Oh, yes, this is, I mean, yes, this is it. Uh, as far as what's done for me outside, uh, I would, I have a tendency to say that uh, I was raised in these arts. I mean, I didn't really start till I was 18 doing Tai Chi. 17 or 18 and and I met my teacher when I was 24 so I wasn't literally raising them but since I started doing them I didn't really do anything else and so what it did was sort of take over my whole life as far as how to make a living and whatnot I learned from my teacher how to do Chinese medicine starting with Tuina and herbal medicine and then I wound up being able to get a an acupuncture license so today that's, I run a clinic that's a Chinese medicine clinic. So that's how I make a living. And for many, many years, I'd say probably about 15 years, I, like I said earlier, you know, at the beginning phase, when I was very young and energetic, I did really a lot of training for myself. And then after that, I put probably continued putting kind of a, a commiserate amount of energy into being part of the school. So a lot of uh, teaching classes and leading classes and facilitating seminars and uh, training events and all this kind of stuff. So really, what's, what school is that, Ethan? Oh, this is the I would the North American Tang Shou Dao would be the overarching one. Okay. Um, the schools like I ran my own school in Vancouver for many years. Uh, then I now I have a school here in Montreal. I don't really have. A, I don't, I'm not really too much interested in making names for them. You know, the one in Vancouver definitely didn't have a name at all. The one here in Montreal, we just called the Montreal Kung Fu Research Center. Okay. Uh, the part that's a Kung Fu school, it doesn't really have a name per se. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just think we're Tong Shadow people. And in your clinical practice, how much of this aspect of Chinese medicine are you implementing and introducing to your patients? Um, this aspect, what do you mean being, by this aspect? This aspect being the Neigong or the Gong Fu or oh, any uh, of the martial arts or inner work. Yeah, I, I, as, anytime, anytime I'm able to, without being offensive, I tell people what I've been saying to you that, you know, if you would just do these exercises I proposed to you, then you wouldn't have this problem anymore. That happened. I say that regularly. Then it, people with uh, 
less less kind of mm, constitutional problems. You say you come and you have a hurt your shoulder or whatever. We, we almost always give you exercises to do along with your treatments if you're interested. That's it, the most common thing is I'm like, so if you're interested, I could suggest some exercises to you. And if people are like, no, nah, I don't care, then I'm fine. I don't mind that. But if they say, yeah, yeah, I want to do something, then we start showing them stuff. I very regularly, they're told, you should just come to the Qigong classes in the morning. Again, we call it Qigong because if we say something else like Neigong or Daoyin, they just don't even have a clue. At least if we say Qigong, people are like, okay, Qigong, Tai Chi, you know, I know something. So we run uh, classes. There's, there's classes for the patients almost every day. And anyone who wants to take part in them is encouraged to take part in them. So it's a fairly large part of what, uh, of all what we do. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Let's circle back around to the Shanghan Loon. Mm -hmm. How did you find that this group that just finished the recital of it, how did they benefit from it? And what was the overall experience for you? So I can only say for the people uh, speaking at secondhand that they all expressed that they enjoyed it a lot. What benefits have they got from it? I couldn't say so much, right. you know. Uh, but the point of the thing is that the course was 12 weeks long and the point of the course, the goal of the 12 weeks was that at the end of the 12 weeks, the people would feel empowered to start up their own personal practice of reciting on a daily basis. Uh, with the idea that if they would do that, then we could expect it in a year from now, they actually could come back and say, here's what's happened due to a year of reciting the Shanghai Lun. The results of our 12 weeks, which was again, pretty experimental to find out what would happen really. We, the, we tried it a few times again with our own students. So those are people who, who we already know and, and are used to doing, basically doing drills repetitively without necessarily understanding why they're doing them. That's like a Kung Fu kind of thing that so if you're a Kung Fu student then you're, and I'm like, just do this drill, then you're kind of used to that. So the people who had none of that kind of experience just doing this recital, it turned out that uh, was, was much better than I expected. Everyone actually was able to do it by the end. I would say they were, after 12 weeks, they had enough room left over in their brain after trying to follow along with the Chinese that they could start to pay attention to what the Chinese was saying. And they certainly all are, are able to now go away and start reciting 30 or 40 lines a day and sort of ingesting it in that fashion, which they weren't at the beginning at all. Right. So you're reciting in this practice, you're reciting the Shanghan Lun in the original language. Mm -hmm. Correct. And are the participants coming into that with any prior existing knowledge of Chinese? Language? Mostly not. There was a, a few people that did have a fairly solid grounding in medical Chinese, just from paying attention, being interested in that and paying attention when they're in, in school for, for becoming acupuncturists or herbalists. But there's no one there that could just um, speak Chinese, you know, if, with a, have a conversation with a Chinese person. There was no one like that. Mm -hmm. And the majority of people really didn't have any, um, any idea at all. In fact, I was kind of surprised that I, I, I had lost perspective on how much, how foreign it is for myself over like the, all the, the last 30 years of being used to hanging around Chinese people. And then the last five years of actually learning the language, I had forgotten that basic things are just not normally known. So they, they didn't know anything really. Yeah. 
And how was the information presented to them so they could recite it? Were you well, teaching we, them to read, or was it auditory? No, no. Of... So this is, we, uh, <clears throat> Stefan and I created our own document, which we used uh, several editions of the um, the Song Dynasty Shanghunlun text. That, and then I translated it into English. And then we formatted it so that it had the characters and then the pinion and then the English, each line. And so when you when you were reciting, you could watch the pinion and know which tones you were trying to hit, uh, but also see the characters and the and the English. A, a, I should say a very specifically and, and purposely ungrammatical and literal English translation. So it there was no attempt to make any grammar, English grammar happen. It was, it sounds like Chinglish when you are reading it in the English version. So that you can actually see the way that Chinese is put together. Right. And were you teaching the group pronunciation? Yeah, exactly. Not, not to a huge degree and not to, not in the, nearly to the extent that a, like a language teacher would do it. But yes, we were, you, they would watch the tone marks and try to hit the ups and the downs, you know, the crosses. By and then reading, we also, sorry, go ahead. By reading the pinion mostly because they by didn't the characters in 12 weeks. Okay. Exactly. By reading the pinion. And then so uh, we also had a recording, which I commissioned one of my friends in Taiwan to make uh, where she reads them out. So they also have a auditory clues, you know, and the, and she, the, my friend in Taiwan is a language teacher. So she read a very nice, like she's trained to, to make you hear the tones. As right. opposed to the normal Chinese person talking, where you know, too bad, so sad. Yeah, and yeah, and so one of the things we learned though from this round is that the next time we do this, if there's a next time, is we'll certainly uh, insist that people buy themselves the the standard digital Chinese English dictionary, which is called um, Pluko, and so that goes in your in your tablet or in your phone, and then you can make flashcards with it very easily. So we're going to make them have to make flashcards each week and then actually practice looking at the characters and learning the characters to some extent. Because we found, especially with the ones that have been doing it, our own students, Kung Fu students that have been doing it a couple of rounds now, there's a definite tendency to just continue looking at the pinion and never transition to looking at the characters at all. Right. So we like, we, we kind of like that. I think at this point, we, it's it's evolving as we go, but at this point, I'm looking at having one of uh, our teachers in China is has a student who does traditional book binding. He, he lives in uh, Wu Taishan, which is a big Buddhist uh, pilgrimage place. And so he makes for all the, the monasteries and the pilgrimage sites up there, he makes these books that are bound in the old school way, all printed out in the old school way. So we're going to get him to print us Shanghuan Luns like that. And with the goal that if you really like pursue this practice, you should be able to have this old school printed up Chang'an and read it from the characters. And that'd be, that would be your recital text. Oh, all, cool. of which is, all of which is entirely superfluous to clinical skills. It's purely just for the fun of, of doing it, you know? It's, yeah. Well, and that I'm glad you brought that up because that's the question I have. The Shanghan Lun, this compendium of this treatise of treating conditions, cold conditions using herbal medicine, really is only a benefit to 
herbal or Chinese medicine practitioners. Yeah, right? really not. You have to say to herbalists. It's only a benefit to herbalists. Okay, so that begs the question for me then: Why the Shang Han Lun, and why not a recital of perhaps a more universally practical text? Let's just say the I Ching or the Tao Te Ching. Right. Well, and that's because, as I said uh, at the beginning, it it came, sort of grew out organically out of uh, Doc uh, Stefan's teacher when he was in acupuncture school in Portland, Doctor Lee insisting that that was the way he wanted to teach his, his Shanghai Lun class at that school. And Stefan's experience where he found it was very beneficial and jived very closely. Like for us, when we're, when we're used to doing Kung Fu stuff, we're like, oh yeah, that's a good way to learn. So we're, we use, we're herbal medical people. We have an interest in the Shanghai Lun. We've realized like, oh, we can learn it this alternate way, which is a very Kung Fu kind of way. And so that was sort of the initial, initial brunt of it, right? The, the fact that we just did this class at the White Pine Institute was entirely fortuitous. It was just because we had been on Sabine's podcast and we had talked about it. And then people started contacting us and saying, hey, can we, we want to do this. It, it wasn't like we said, hey, let's do this course. It was people asking us. And then, so all, all of that is to say like it wasn't a choice. But then also on a more technical level, it is in, in fact only useful to herbalists, but to herbalists, it's it's very interesting. The 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 Shanghun Lun, the grammar and the vocabulary is really simple. So compared to one of these other texts, it's it's uh, easier to do. Uh, the the things that it says when you see the even if you just did it one time and very clearly saw that the Chinese without commentary or explanation just saw what the Chinese is saying. All kinds of little interesting things pop up where you're like, oh, I didn't like it's interesting. It says that no one, none of my teachers ever told me that it says that thing specifically before. Um, so, so it brings up interesting things to see again, in, much like the Neijing and the, the, the difficulties of translation and the sort of beauty of going back to the original text. In this case, it's the same kind of thing, but it's so much more simplified because it's just literally, I mean, the Shanghai Lun, it's, it's just saying the client has this and this and this condition, give them these herbs. It doesn't get into philosophy or, or background theory or anything like that. It just says, you see them having these, these symptoms, give them these herbs. Yeah. Ethan, do you think you will do this same process with other books? I'm not sure. Cause again, there's, there's this cool part within, with the Shanghai Lun where it's like short and sweet and, and quite simple. So yeah. in 12 weeks, we definitely could do this thing. And people during the course, I took to talking about talk, speaking Shanghai Lun. Not speaking Chinese, just speaking Shanghai Lun. You could you could aspire to do that and have a very good grasp of all the vocabulary and grammar in the Shanghai Lun. If we translate to other texts, you know, it, it gets into a different thing. Like so, again, Sabine now is running a class which is twelve weeks long. I think of the foundations of of classical Chinese grammar, and that would be the kind of thing you'd have to do if you wanted to expand into other courses, other other books, and in that case, if you want to do that, you, at this point in my, my process, I would say you should go study with Sabine, not get it from me. Like she, I, I can't explain you the grammar the way she explains the grammar. Right. I, people have definitely already been asking us, well, could we do something like this for the Neijing? And so it's already sort of percolating in my head. Is this possible? Could we do it? Like, how would it look and stuff? Cause obviously again, 
the, the, the Shangon Lun is 398 lines long. It's very small. It doesn't yeah. talk about mystical, mind-blowing big pictures. The Neijing is all that other stuff. And so to, to whittle it down to a bite-sized chunk for people is, I'm not sure if it's possible or not yet. But we'll see. Maybe, maybe. Right. Very interesting. Well, thank you for this journey of which I had no idea where we were heading. Where can listeners find out more about you and what you're working on? Well, the, the obvious places are uh, you can search the Montreal Kung Fu Research Center, uh, com. That's our, our website up here in Montreal for my sort of personal operation. Uh, if you search North American Tong Shodao, this is where you'll find information about the, the rest of my the, the stuff I've been talking about. And then otherwise, the, the like my teachers are Dr. Neil with his Xinling Institute. If anyone really wants to study about the Neijing, I would say go take his course. Okay. Uh, where, and, where is the Xinling Institute? Is that in Arizona? Uh, no, no. I think, I guess it's physically in Portland, Oregon. Oh, it's, sorry, in Portland. Okay. Yeah, but he has, his classes are online and, and then he has um, physical events that are in Europe and in various places on the West Coast. Okay. But his, his entry level thing is this, this year and a half long Neijing studies course, which is all online and is, is kind of heavily biased towards acupuncturists, but I would recommend anyone who is really interested in the Neijing to take it regardless of if you're an acupuncturist or not. And from there, you would have a foundation to kind of go on exploring with it at the moment in, in English, I think this is the best, the most comprehensive course you could get. And then, uh, for the medicine, for, for the, the language part, again, I would recommend looking at Sabine's stuff. I, like, like if you were really like, Oh, I want to be able to read these things myself and uh, not go to China and spend two years, you know, full-time learning to speak Chinese. Uh, Sabine's course, I think is an excellent place to, to go do that. And then otherwise, uh, I, I mean, through the, 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 the websites of the, my place in Montreal, the, the Kung Fu Research Center and the North American Tong Shudal, whatever next uh, steps are developing will, will come up, um, pop up on those, through those channels. Right. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this today. It's uh, well, the opportunity just to hear your story and learn more about your life journey. It's been an honor. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. It's been uh, interesting for me to try to um, articulate it, put it into a, some kind of a, a, a easy to to understand format. You know, I, it's a, it all seems normal to me, but how to how to lay it out in a way that it seems normal to other people. I don't, it's, it's kind of challenging, and I'm happy to give it a shot. <laughs> well, as Sabina likes to say. Those of us who do this work are actually not normal at all. We're very weird. So, <laughs> I, I I can't really argue with that statement, and and yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing where this the the, the Neijing research goes. And like I said to you earlier, I, I don't have necessarily a an idea of what I'm going to do, but what I or like uh, things that I want to publish myself or that kind of thing. But what I do want to really want to do is is be connected with a community of people who are engage with the Neijing particularly as a text which is applicable to understanding the world today and has a lot of really valuable information in it for us today not just for Chinese medicine people but 
for for everyone as a way to to understand what's going on today. So that's the biggest thing that I'm interested in. Like, like kind of my inspiration to say, yeah, I'll I'll go talk to this guy and see what he wants to ask me is because if it the facilitates uh, sort of getting networking with people on that level, that's what I'm most interested in. Great. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. And I'm sure our listeners will take a lot from this. I'll put all the links in the show notes and good luck on all of this, on all of your research and, and thank you for sharing it with me. Cool. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Ethan Murchie. For more about Ethan and Gong Fu, please visit MontrealGongFu.com. That's GongFu, G-O-N-G-F-U. To join me in learning to read classical Chinese with the renowned scholar Sabina Wilms, please visit ImperialTutor.com. If you feel drawn to study Chinese medicine, the School of Acupuncture and Chinese Medicine at Pacific Rim College offers world-renowned multi-year programs, including world's first study options, combining acupuncture with Western herbal medicine and holistic nutrition. Visit PacificRimCollege.com to learn more. Also, don't forget to check out our online education in Chinese medicine by exploring the amazing course offerings at PacificRimCollege.online, including many courses featuring other guests of this podcast. Sign up for our newsletter to receive special offers on our newest releases. If you are interested in receiving clinical services on holistic nutrition, herbal medicine, and acupuncture in Chinese medicine, the student clinic at PRC provides more than 7,000 annual treatments. Live holistic nutrition and herbal medicine consultations are both available online, while acupuncture and Chinese medicine treatments can be had at our Victoria campus. Free treatment options are available in all areas. Visit the student clinic at PacificRimCollege.com for more information and to book your appointment. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, try out an ancient martial arts practice to see how it can impact your well-being. <laughs>